Hi there, Queens. I'm Dr. Leslie Branch. And I'm Lanier Logan, and this is Hear Me. Black women define the narratives that shape us. Hear Me weaves contemporary and historical weekly conversations to create stronger bonds and lasting legacies. Hear Me is a sacred space where we discuss and define narratives that shape and define who society says we are and find common ground on the things that unite us. She is me, I am her, and we are Hear Me. How are you? I'm uh, I'm okay. Just you know, of course the 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 events of um, the week are just um, I don't know. I'm on a emotional roller coaster, I guess. You know, I've not cried or anything, but I've you know really uh, have been kind of sad, and it's just boggling, um, you know, to deal with I guess the fact that people really just hate us you know um and it's it's quite troubling and I've wrestled with um writing a piece you know I didn't want to write it just because um I guess things are just so raw um and so might you know, be the best I, time I, to write it yeah I know um so I kind of started it um so I, I maybe have a half a page or two thirds more of a page to to go. And of course, you know, I'm trying to not write emotionally just because, you know, once you put words out there, you can't take them back. Um, and so I just want to be mindful uh, of that and just mindful also of who I am and how things can have repercussions and you know, I want whatever it is that I write to be um, constructive, but uh, this is just, you know, we we have been going through this for the last, what, well, I mean, really the last 400 years, but um, in our recent memories, um, the last five years or so, um, five or six years, and nothing has changed. And you know, um, I just wonder if it will after this time, you know, after these protests, um, or will it just, you know, will we just have short memories and, you know, little things will be done to assuage us and then, you know, we forget about it and then go back to, to life as normal. So I don't know, but it's, it's just definitely jacked up. I think um, I'm pretty much in the same space. Yesterday, I was like, it was not good. I woke up. So I think too much of social media is just not good. Mm. Because um, that's where we're getting the real news that's where we're getting the real footage by really seeing the videos of the things that are happening on the ground like we're getting them without edits without um any type of conditioning before the news starts to spin it and and just present one specific narrative so i found myself from friday to saturday just being like literally enraged and then 
I went from that to like, Madison, put that game down. You need to come look at see what's, what I'm looking at on YouTube because I need her to see what's going on. Like, get out these games and right. you need to see what's happening. And she just, it was a lot. And eventually I just, she was like, I don't want to watch this anymore. And I was like, like at first I was like being that militant parent, like, no, you need to watch it. But then I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I let her go away and let her go play video games because it's heavy enough for me as an adult and for her as a kid, but I just needed her to explain it. And I was trying to like explain to her what was happening and I just kept breaking down and crying. And I like, it's so I'm not crying because I feel, I think the weirdest part is that I don't even feel hopeless. I feel so empowered and proud that people are out there, but then then the flip side of it, watching all of these um, provocateurs come in and um, we're catching them on camera now, which is like, it changes the narrative um, where people are like complaining, oh, they're going in and looting and doing this and doing that. No, that's not all them. That's uh-huh. not all them. Like, and so on Twitter, people are catching these white people come in and breaking down, kicking stores like kids. And there's this one video with this young black girl is screaming at them through the blowhorn, stop it, no, telling them not to bring the wing nothing but white kids breaking the windows and because you know it's just something to do now whether they were paid to do that or they're just kids letting loose just taking advantage Mm -hmm. of the moment it just was infuriating to me that people always find a way to hijack our moment and sometimes we allow them and you know i have a thing about inviting everybody to the cookout everybody don't need to come to the cookout like, it's this fictitious cookout on social media, like, when a white person or somebody not African-American speaks up, oh, they get a plate to the cookout. No, the fuck they don't. You supposed to speak out because this is wrong, <laughs> period. Like, I don't need to include you in my personal circle because you have done something of humankind. And I think the other part of the frustration was is that in realizing the silence of so many of my white peers on LinkedIn and Facebook, I realized like our relationship is just convenience, right? Like you probably like me because we're cool and we've connected on some sort of level, but you don't really give a fuck about me. And clearly this government has made it very clear that they don't care about us. They hear us yelling and kicking and screaming and they don't care because you haven't earned the right to tell us what we're not going to do. You need to shut up and be humble and be glad we let you in this space. And that's how I feel. And so my feelings went to rage like, well, we built this country, so we'll burn this bitch down. And I, I have not posted that, that specific statement because I do realize that I have a platform, I do realize that people look to me and I realize how that can be taken, but that's the space I'm in. Like we built this place, so we'll burn this bitch down and 
oh well, because y'all not listening. It's like kids, when kids don't listen, they do the most extreme thing to get your attention. And I, you know, it's just, I have just, I have so many feelings about this. So I, I just, today I tried to focus and stay in the moment. Um, I went live, I connected with a friend of mine who created the Black Query. Uh, Literally, she had the idea on Tuesday, linked up with a friend, they built the website over a course of three days. And so what she's trying to do is push a lot of us to, for a clear ask, because with every march, with every protest, there's an ask. We're making this noise because we're asking for things. And so she's a data person. So when you go on the campaign, there's a few campaigns, but she's saying like, you know, what black voters want. So are we look, what is it that we want? So do we want um, police reform, but with accountability? What is it that we're asking for? And then she's gonna collect these and then start to push them to different outlets who are already pushing to create policy. So that's her her space of what she's doing to play her role in this movement. And that's all I'm trying to focus on right now. Like, so what what can we do to be a part of the like we're already a part of this movement? What role do we want to play? Do we want to sit home and be stressed and overwhelmed and not add, or do we want to play our part? Uh, I also gave 25 seats away. Today, I'm giving them to African-American men or women who want to join into the PMP to enter my course that launches on uh, next Monday. I'm giving 25 seats away, like, because this country is being burnt down. You're going to need project managers to help build it back up. (laughs) So let's, like, let's go. Like, you know, my gift is to teach people how to increase their earning potential. So I'm just going to start to give more information and provide more opportunities um, for people of color. I think that that's the only thing that I feel comfortable doing right now to channel my rage and just giving people um, an opportunity to kind of like share in that platform. And then I ended up interviewing Milgrit today on my live. So I have to post those videos on um, my YouTube. And so that's what I'm going to be doing all week. And I was just like, our podcast is at 6 30 so i know we got a lot of stuff picked up with us <laughs> so this is this is perfect timing because i think that black people finally are understanding what juneteenth is and i don't know if we want to have a podcast we want to talk about that tonight or we want to maybe we could see where things go or maybe add that into the rotation. But I think for so long, I don't think people were very clear about what Juneteenth really was and why that's our holiday opposed to July 14th. And um, July 4th, right, I'm sorry. And, you know, today is 99 years later after Tulsa, Oklahoma. So there's so much significance in the things that are going on right now and where we are, that um, I just think what we're doing is really important. So I'm ready when you are. Okay. Um, so, whew. I'm telling you. So. <laughs> Your curls are like doing a thing today. And you yeah. look very, 
I like it though because it's kind of like so today let me tell you what you look like you look like the cool professional who's just like look I'm here to teach today don't worry about my suit my dress your curls is like you was in the trenches and you ready to go well I mean I just sort of you know did like this and like this and picked it out a little bit so you know it, it probably looks crazy but at this point I guess very like Fist in the air, Angela Davis kind of curl. I'm loving it. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, thank you. That is the I, I vibe I'm getting. It. I appreciate it. So, all right. So, I I have pulled up the um the I guess the outline for episode yes. three. Oh, excuse me. I'm tired. I I've not been sleeping well. Um, I haven't really had an appetite. Mm -hmm. Um, just you know, my stomach doing all kind of things, and uh, I'm pretty sure my pressure was up at one point because my head just was uh feeling funny, so I just had to get to this computer and start writing. Um, just nuts. All right, um, bu -bu -bu. I'm putting my book, so I decided this weekend actually inspired the COINTELPRO papers. That's my reference for um, the book that I think people should read. It's perfect timing for it. Okay. Um, and so that I'm putting it, I'm putting the actual link, the right title actually right now. Okay. And Lord Churchill. Uh, there we go. Do you need a cyber hug? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good. I, I think, um, or I will be good just because I can't not be good. Um, I can't remember where it was that I read, um, but there was a my my heart just breaks for mothers who have black sons um and i can't remember where it was that i read it but uh it was one something that i read where a, uh, a mother called her son or something like that to uh, make sure he was okay and and he just broke down the son just broke down you know and asked mom why do they hate us so much um and that of course broke my heart um not not because I have a son um but just just because I'm a woman wrapped in this you know this color skin and and I don't wish to be white um but it just it just makes me wonder what what is it you know and and we're hated the world over not just here in this country right um you know and it just took me back to um the Cain and Abel situation where um, after I can't remember which brother it was that, um, you know, got killed and which one stayed alive. But as a result of the murder, um, God marked the one who did the killing. And so, and the reason he did that was so people knew that they shouldn't mess with him because 
you know, retribution was going to, I guess, come to him from God. But the the mark was just so great on him that no nowhere that he went was he received. And I, you know, I, re, I equate that to black people um, or people of the African diaspora who are marked with, you know, this, this pigment that we have and the world over, um, most of where we go, we're hated, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just because of, you know, the, the skin that we're wrapped in. And it just, it, it eludes, um, it eludes the ability to, um, I don't know, it doesn't make sense. And for me, not that everything has to make sense, most things should, or else I'm just not going to, you know, countenance them with the light of day because I, you know, tried to not traffic in foolishness. But um, that this just doesn't make sense is really, and it's not something I can let go, obviously, because I'm part of the thing that doesn't make sense, right? How is it that just because I'm wrapped in this, I'm I'm hated. It doesn't make sense. Like I've not done anything to you personally for you to hate me with the um the Intensity. level of right. I mean I could see if I did something to you to 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 warrant that, but just because I am, um it just it 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 makes no sense. It it's mind boggling. Um, and, and so that's why I try to not get so into, I try to not think so much because in thinking and dwelling uh, on things, especially if they're not pure, if they're not good, if they're not lovely, if they don't have a good report, you can end up really going off the deep end. So Really good. And yeah. not to mention, I just think that... Um, I always think about this. My friend's dad thought killed the thinker. And I think in this interest in this in instance, like black people think about this. This is the life that we live, right? So this is already a part of the burden or on our shoulders because some of us has experienced this personally or we've personally witnessed this. So I oh. think to now think about this from a global perspective and just see it happening in front of your face and to like we never needed to we never not believed each other when we knew these things were happening but it's like to see this in the last 72 hours just like on replay in different instances it's a lot to carry so it makes me concerned about um everyone's mental health and where yeah. we are and you know we're still in the middle of a damn pandemic some people are going to have to show up and go to work tomorrow right even if it's just to show up to go to work virtually and it's like how do yeah. you do that like how am i going to show up and are they going to address this in a, in a staff meeting if they do address it, it do i want to hear them address it because they're going to try to make it pc that i'm going to feel dismissed now i'm angry at work like i've already been thinking about all of these things because i know how the people i work with are 
and they are very cavalier in the things that they say that are so inappropriate and that often go unchecked. And I am, I've already decided if I, the, the first thing that I hear that I don't like, I'm closing my laptop tomorrow. Because mm-hmm. if I respond, it's not, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I won't be working there anymore. <laughs> and right. I, and, and, and we, we need a job. You know, we need all of the sources of income we have coming in, but I also won't be disrespected and I also won't be dismissed in my workplace. Mm-hmm. So I am honestly praying for their sanity. Like I'm praying for them that they don't get checked tomorrow. I hope they just choose to not address this in the staff meeting and just, they just keep it quiet and keep it pushing because I I don't really know what's going to happen. So I know this is really important and we're on borrowed time. So we're going to jump into episode three of our podcast. Can you believe like we're on episode three? Yeah. Yeah. What's more more impressive is that we were able to, you know, uh, link up for the uh, the short time we did on, I don't even remember what day, to, you know, definitely capitalize on um, where we're at today. Because our episode three initially was supposed to be something else. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad we were able to change that around and really like and look what happened we changed it around and it's still a hot button issue it's unraveled uh unraveled episode three ahmad brianna george here we go again Mm. literally uh the continued brutalization of black bodies i think at this point i've seen a map that i posted on instagram on saturday night that had yeah cities half of the cities on the map were red because there were riots and by the morning i had people commenting oh no this city add this city add this city and i think at this point i had to make it clear to people that no it's still growing and um at this point i think it's every state every city major city in the united states has a riot and a protest i don't know if i've I want to call it a riot. Have a protest. Should we say riot? I wouldn't say riot. I would say protesting. Yeah. There's a protest happening. So, I mean, I guess in this episode, we're really talking about um, political power and what that looks like and how they can use it Mm -hmm. to affect change. And yeah, I know yeah. in the middle of rage and anger, <clears throat> I know that there are a lot of people who are on the front lines that I'm I'm grateful for. I know that they're not all thinking about this because in the heat of the moment, things are happening. And so I think right now everybody is in, just in the thick of it. So us having this conversation and really providing hopefully some solutions and mm-hmm. some things for people to start to think about because there will be an after and we do have to be a part of the cleanup. We can't allow the government or anyone else to come in and tell us how we should proceed. We need to be a part of the change in the future that we want to have. So um, I guess our show question today is why does the law, 
the law consistently fail black people? And are Southern states far less inclusive of black lives than Northern states? Or is that just the perception? So, um, you know, the, so why does the law uh, consistently fail black people? Um, I think if we went back to the, uh, to the, to the beginnings, to the uh, foundation of this country, uh, in terms of the documents that were um, hammered out, so to speak, um, we would see that one of the reasons the law consistently fails Black people uh, is because um, they were either excluded um, and not referred to as people um, or because when Black people were referenced, it was only um, in the form of chattel or property and the advantages that they gave to white um, uh, landowners uh, who were slaves, um, advantages in terms of um, voting uh, for representation in, um, in, in the Congress. So the law was never intended to provide uh, Blacks or the descendants of uh, enslaved Africans or even enslaved Africans with any privileges or protections. And um, even though we do have the, con the, the Reconstruction Amendment, um, there was sort of a sleight of hand, if you will, that even though those Reconstruction Amendments did um, engraft uh, freed slave folks and their descendants in as citizens, um, it, it put, um, I guess, in there uh, the ability to revoke uh, that citizenship or those citizenship rights. And then of course, um, you know, after emancipation, uh, we saw uh, Jim Crow and black codes which pretty much kept those promises um, out of reach. And, um, you know, what we're seeing today in terms of the, um, the protests um, is the, the weaponized, if you will, uh, response of white fragility to having um, it called out, right? So as long as uh, Blacks and other marginalized folks are complicit with um, uh, protecting and upholding white fragility, um, things are okay. But the minute that, uh, that white fragility is uh, uncovered, if that veil is rent or, or torn uh, and, and you know, whites are exposed as a race um, and the things that they do as a race um, under the, the law, um, it, it, it results in a, um, in, a, in a very violent backlash against uh, the people who simply are reminding America of what uh, she promised to do under the law. 
So let's like go back a little bit because we hear that word a lot and I'm not sure if everyone is clear on what it means, but white fragility, what does that mean to you? Or what does it mean? I guess not to you, but general. So in, in a wonderful book, and I'm going to sort of show it to you on the camera. I don't know if you can yes. see that. I can see it's it. Called, okay. It's called White Fragility, uh, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin uh, D'Angelo. And uh, she published her book the same year that I published mine. But um, this notion of white fragility, um, D'Angelo essentially uh, talks about, is uh, the discomfort and the uh, defensiveness on the part of white people when they are confronted uh, by information about racial inequality and uh, injustice. Right, and so they somehow get defensive and take it personal that so they equate um, uh, racist uh, or racism uh, with an individual or a conscious and an intentional um, uh, act, and so because white folks are not um, uh, engaging in individual. Uh, racist acts, or they're not consciously uh, behaving in racist ways, or they're not intentionally um, engaging in racist behavior, whenever this this notion of racism is brought up, um, or, you know, this notion of, uh, not notion, or, or the, the, the phenomena of um, of uh, inequality and injustice, they take it personal because uh, what uh, D'Angelo says is that uh, white fragility has somehow transmogrified uh, racism and the racist to individuals, not a system. Um, and so because, again, these people, when they are confronted with uh, uh, inequality and injustice, they take it personal because no, 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 I'm not individually uh, behaving in those ways. And so when that sort of happens uh, and when they get exposed, uh, they become very, uh, very enraged and, and as a way to protect uh, the system, uh, the defense of white fragility is is very volatile. It's very violent, um, and it is weaponized, right? And so it's systemic in that in that way, right? So it's very interesting how this functions. Um, this notion of um, white fragility or or racism. It's so fluid that it it is able to shift shape. It's kind of like a shapeshifter, um, which allows it to um, to survive, right? So I don't know, thinking about uh, some pests that, that survive anything, like cockroaches, uh, like rats, you can do anything to them, and, and, and they have survived for decades, for eons, um, just because they're able to you know, I guess maneuver or or adapt or, or whatever the right um, scientific uh, word is, and and they are able to um, 
to to show up, you know, decade after decade, millennial after uh, millennia, because they are just that fluid that um, you know they survive, and 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 so that's kind of what uh, is meant by this this notion of white fragility, right? And so. Um, the unfortunate thing and the very true thing is that um, the souls of Black folks, the literal lives of Black folks, have been sustaining and nurturing and maintaining white fragility. Uh, and then when Black folks uh, dare to question, um, you know, the promise or the the things that America has, you know, uh, said she stood for uh, or stands for, um, we we see that violent weaponization of white fragility. And over the last, um, of course, since the founding of this country, but in your and my and most of our audience's uh, memory, because none of us were here 400 years ago, um, but certainly in the last five years, um, we have, um, you know, we have seen a litany of, of black bodies, uh, both male and female, man and woman, you know, uh, child and adult, who have just uh, been slaughtered to maintain um, white fragility. I mean, Martin Luther King, Jr., Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, Landa Castile, um, you know, and 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 others. Um, this is this is the mortgage that essentially has been paid with black souls, literally, to maintain white fragility, right? And so this is this interesting intersection, if you will, of, of white fragility meeting double consciousness. And because black folks are refusing to um, engage in this double consciousness for the comfort of white fragility, we are now seeing the weaponized violence response, uh, the, the weaponized violent response of white fragility because double consciousness um, and black folks don't want to play that game anymore. So I don't know if it's, um, I think that's a good point. Um, it makes me just wonder. I feel like a part of the fragility, though, is white fragility is white people don't want to give up their privilege, even the liberal ones. The ones that's who exactly are just like, and I look at the liberal ones, the ones who are quick to be like, but not all white people. First of all, shut the fuck up because you don't even need to say that. If that is your instinctive response, you, my friend, have are a part of the problem because you don't need to say that. You don't need to say that because you know your counterparts and people who look like you who are pushing this, you know a thing is a thing. So why do you need to get defensive? And that's part of the problem. That is hugely problematic for me. I see that happening daily day in and day out a lot of people are in their feelings and the reality is is that they just don't want to give up the privilege that comes along with it um they don't want to share that privilege and i would respect them more if they were honest and said that and that's exactly you know 
uh, the point of white fragility. Um, the minute uh, the notion of uh, racial inequality and uh, injustice is raised, there's this defense, um, this, there's this defensive response because of what racism and the racist is now defined as. It's now, the, the racist is now no longer a system, it is an individual. Um, racism is now conscious, it's no longer unconscious, and the racist is now intentional in what it is that they do, it's not unintentional. And so to, and even, you know, liberal whites, um, the fact that they would get defensive um, definitely shows or, or bears out the, um, the premise in white fragility that they suffer from it because they, their, their reaction or their response to the mere issues being raised um, is that somehow you are implicating them when in fact um, you're not necessarily implicating an individual, you are uh, interrogating um, a structure, right? And so because in their mind, it's an individual thing and in the minds of people that look like you and I, it's a system, um, they can't hear that but if is. they're honest with themselves, it is they are a part of that system. And that's of the course. problem. You're a part of that system because it's not, as an individual, your defenses is because you know that you have participated and benefited. Maybe not in uh, the harsh ways. Maybe you're not as malicious as everyone else. Maybe you don't see me as a monkey or maybe you do see me as value. Uh, maybe you can uh, have a conversation with me or maybe even invite me to your home because I might be the good one. But no one wants to dig down into their subconscious and realize like, no, I'm guilty of this too because they've the same way we've been conditioned in Black America to be a certain way is the same way they've been conditioned to as white, to be, to have this, um, to feed into and to just, they all have this sense of entitlement that they don't realize yeah. is a part of white fragility. Like, why do you have this entitlement? And when you look at some of these individuals in these videos on Twitter that I've been kind of sharing, um, and you see the way they're breaking the windows and how they're, like, they move with a certain, because there's no repercussions in their actions. They're not going to be blamed for this anyway. So I'm just going to go out here. I'm going to break this window. I'm going to do this. I'm going to spray paint this. And they move with this sense of freedom that's attached to entitlement because they're not going to be held accountable. And yeah. that's something that we as Black America, we don't do because, yes, we move with freedom to a degree. We're always thinking about how does how is this going to be perceived here if you're a black business and you say i only want to work with people of color or black people you're always looking for ways to change your verbiage because you don't want to offend someone you don't want to walk away from a bag of money or you know alienate your customers and it's like they don't think about that when they approach things it's either yeah. you're on board or you don't and i think there's a sense of freedom that we need to move in the same spaces in in mirror of them 
in terms of you guys move with this freedom so we are too and i'm not i'm not dealing with you you don't have to deal with me i like personally i like my racist racist i like to know you don't fuck with me i like to know <laughs> you don't want no parts of me because the feeling is mutual we're not gonna play around i'm not gonna smile in your face and act like everything is cool i prefer that because i know where you're coming from and you stay where you at and i'm gonna stay where i'm at but all of this mixing and you my ally and you're pretending and i i just can't do i don't do well with that so it's you know it's you raised uh an interesting point about how you know, uh, certain people have a freedom to do and and uh, there would be no consequences for actions. Uh, and so that's kind of, I guess, um, in sociology maybe, uh, it's known as uh, the cult counter-cultural um, behavior. And so it is interesting to see how um, white counter-culture behavior is okay and it is sanctioned uh, when white fragility is at stake, and then rarely, if ever, uh, is white fragility's violent weaponized response um, uh, ever brought to justice, right? So um, it will be interesting to see uh, for those who, um, you know, whose images uh, show up on social media. Uh, in terms of kicking in doors and breaking things and setting, you know, things on fire, well, will, will already, they to justice? So I'm sorry, it's already on social media. It's just not on the news. The news is conveniently not. So the news is, and I was that was going to be my follow up to you about issue framing and the media mm -hmm. and how they the media operates and narrates in white fragility. Well, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, again, um, and so he, here's what's going to be interesting. Um, uh, Donald Trump is in an all-out war uh, of sorts um, with Twitter because Twitter has, um, you know, tagged a few of his um, tweets. Oh, inappropriate. Right. And so, uh, Will truth seekers go to the footage that is raw and unedited um, that is on social media, or will they just take the things that are framed uh, conveniently and neatly and tell, um, you know, the story that they want to tell? Um, and and I so, think that that's, so coming from public relations and, and marketing, that the challenge with that is the age groups not all age groups are on twitter and we know that a lot of our elders are on facebook where they're having these conversations but you're not always getting the live updates on facebook as quickly as you're getting them on twitter or maybe even instagram so it means some elders are getting their news from the news Right. Right. So unless you have young people in your household who, and I could be wrong, I haven't seen any statistics on this. I'm just thinking about the numbers and the statistics and the marketing purposes of when you're talking to Facebook and what that looks like and the audience and who tunes into Facebook opposed to Twitter, et cetera, and uh, Instagram. So I'm just thinking about it from that perspective. 
but how many adults are actually on Twitter? I know my parents weren't on Twitter getting the news. You know, like my dad was getting some of these updates from me because I was sending it to him, right? Yeah. Opposed to he was on Facebook. And I don't even know if he was seeing half of the things that I was seeing. But um, if people's first glance at the news and what's happening, because um, Shakana, one of the reality stars from Atlanta, she got on Instagram yesterday and was crying about, and she, she tried to say that's not what she was crying about, but she got dragged for filth by people. <laughs> so she changed her tune, but she was crying, talking about, I can't believe y'all going and breaking these stores. Why would y'all do that? Why would y'all go in Gucci? And it's like, what? Are you, are you out here arguing? and defending the right for Gucci not to be looted when they just had a monkey on a sweater and was selling it. They don't advocate for us. They don't support us. When you go into their stores, they barely have people of color who work there. And when they do work there, they make significantly less than their white counterparts. And I just think I really want us to get out of this space to where we care more about these material things. Like, I'm not going to say that I advocate and support the looting right? I'm not going to say that. Like, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business owner. So I'm not going to say that. However, those large businesses target, all of those places have insurance. They have insurance. Like, who is actually going into and breaking down those small Black businesses is the question, right? Because if a, a small business, a Black business in the community, everybody should know that business. So who's breaking, who's doing that, right? Is, and that's why like my book reference, and we'll talk about it later, but people don't realize that provocateurs are real. They're paid to come in. You know, it's always been this rumor of George Soros and funding Black Lives Matter and having people come in and agitate crowds and go in and break, you know, buildings. And I just saw before we got on this call, I just saw a video of this young white guy giving these young black boys money and telling them to go break this window, go do this. And they were at a, um, a protest. So these things are happening. We've always known that they happen in the civil rights movement. I think that just right now, the cameras, social media is catching this, right? We're catching people. We're seeing them. The guy in Minneapolis, in Min um, was it Minneapolis or Minnesota? Not Minnesota, Minneapolis. He broke the window in the auto zone. Come to find out that was a cop. And his wife yeah. outed him on social media, his ex-wife. And he was dressed in all black, had this whole gas mask on, went, was just walked up with a, um, a black umbrella, broke the windows. Because if they can argue that we're savages and we're going to run in and loot and distract the message, if you break these windows, you know people are going to naturally run in in the heat in the moment. And there were a yeah. few protesters who followed him and was asking him, who are you? Why'd you break those windows? And they were following him. And he was getting pissed off because they was on his heels. And they was like, are you a cop? And he was just like, he didn't really know what to do because he was kind of caught and people had him on camera and the camera went off. So I don't really know what happened. I don't know if they got into a fight. I don't know if he threatened them or what happened, but we're seeing these videos all weekend and the news is not playing that. The news, all Atlanta kept playing was that, I wanna be respectful to Ms. Keisha Bottoms, but all they kept playing was 
black people looting and running into these stores um they weren't really showing everyone else like they weren't showing the bigger picture and they're getting their news the same way we're getting it from twitter especially from people on the ground and they're selectively choosing not to show the whole story or even that white man who said to the media that he got beat up by two black guys the older one and he pulled out a bow and arrow and like 14 white kids jumped him and it's all on footage. So as he's lying to these people saying that, oh, I had a thousand dollars worth of things in my car and they flipped my car over, it's totally damaged. I don't even have my car keys. The news, cause he was like, wait, they did, who did? He was like two blacks, uh, two African-Americans. Like the weaponization of just calling out black people cause you know, the police are gonna be looking for us is so problematic. That needs to be, illegal force accusations need to be illegal like where is the policy for that where is you know the prosecution it's just brushed under the table no one gets arrested for that it's like oh yeah no, i mean point the blame at you all day long and it's it's unfortunate but it it goes back to um i would suggest law failing uh black people it was never meant to um privilege or protect us. Uh, and, and only, um, I guess, because of a civil war and one side losing in the civil war and then being sort of forced to, um, to abolish slavery, did they, you know, um, I guess, concede on paper, but certainly not um, not in reality. They have found loopholes, if you will, um, to sidestep whatever the protections of the law uh, that were supposed to be for, for, you know, black and brown people or the um, freed slaves and the um, uh, descendants of enslaved uh, people. And so to this day, um, it just, it is, astonishing um, that something can be a clear uh, a clear violation of law uh, you know but in one sense um, the person is found guilty and then you know in an in an opposite uh, instance nothing happens so wait nothing happens there was another part to our question. So do you think the Southern states are far less inclusive uh, than the Northern states? Well, I mean, so I would, I would answer that question um, this way. I would suggest wherever, um, wherever the threat of, um, wherever black people or marginalized people pose a threat to white fragility, um, it is an issue, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be um, the Southern states only. And, and part of the reason I answer that way is because I think about um, voting rights. And when voting rights was passed uh, in the 1960s, there were some places that you would think didn't have a problem with 
minorities being kept from the polls. And one of those places is in the Bronx, New York, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily um, think that it's regional. Um, I think wherever there is a, the, the dominant group lives and they are a majority and they feel that their power is, is, going, is threatened, um, that, that it's a problem. So it doesn't necessarily mean only the South. It can mean the Midwest, um, the Plains states, um, upstate New York, where, you know, not too many people that look like us live. Um, it, it could be very dangerous to be, um, you know, a person of color. And and I was going to say that, too, because that's what I'm thinking about. I So first of all, watching the videos and NYPD's responses, how brutal they've been all weekend, just very aggressive, running over people, protesters in the cars, and de Blasio condoning it, talking about, uh, he made a statement when they asked him, do you think that the actions of the NYPD were uh, excessive force with the way they use the car to attack um, the protester, and I'm paraphrasing. And he's like, uh, no, I don't. I think that they did the best that they could at the time, and uh, those protesters shouldn't have been in the street or in front of the car. And I was just like, that type of dismissiveness, that type of lack of respect, like, you are so in fear of going, I don't know if he's afraid of going against the union of the NYPD or he just really, that's his attitude. He doesn't care because he totally used his whole black wife and mixed son as a front. I don't know why people fell for it in New York City because he definitely didn't deserve, deserve to be mayor. And I'm glad I was leaving at the time that he became because he's complete trash and I said it. And so is NYPD. I feel like NYPD is running neck to neck with their abuse, like the LAPD. Their tactics, they're very aggressive. They, I never see them be solution oriented. I never see them try to go in and defuse situations. They're always very volatile, aggressive. Now, is this every New York City police officer? I doubt that it's every, but I don't, I don't have enough time in my day to go and meet every New York City police officer, so I could care less. If you stand back and you allow your partner to commit a crime, then you're just as part of the problem as they are. Because at what point do you hold them to a higher standard? Uh, for me, I think Southern states, the difference is, I don't think that they have as many people Right. And so where it could be dangerous to be driving in Alabama uh, at three in the morning and you encounter a cop car. In my mind, I just have this thought and it doesn't necessarily have to be accurate, but they may be able to you have an altercation and get rid of you and you know none the wiser. No one ever knows what happens. Like it might just be an easier an easier cover up. Like if I think about all the people who have, could have possibly died from the hands of police across the country that we don't know, that we haven't heard about, that doesn't have a hashtag because yeah. there were no witnesses. And it's just like, I mean, just think about Sandra Bland. That is unsettling to me that we don't have the right answers. 
at all. It is. It is. And so, you know, so to, to, I guess, weigh in on the, um, the police, the police thing, right? So I, I'm, I try to be very careful, uh, just in terms of how I use, um, trash. Uh, <laughs> well, no, 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 not that. Um, how I use, um, I, the, the, the word is escaping me. Um, uh, things like all and, and, and never and always, um, you know, and I'm, I'm teaching a doctoral uh, course presently. And in that course, I do have uh, some law enforcement um, uh, folks and they are really, um, uh, they're going through uh, some stuff in terms of, um, I guess the, how people are framing things around, you know, law enforcement, um, you know, and these are, these are, uh, are brothers. And so, um, it's just interesting, uh, um, to, to, to see because clearly, um, they are not, uh, you know, the cops who are running people over in, in, in vehicles and things like that yet they get looped in um is as part of you know um these all so and and with regard to to new york city um police um uh, they do have a very uh i don't know if provocative is the right word um uh in uh, provocative leader in the person of uh pat lynch Right, so he is, I guess, the head of the the police yeah, the union, union. Um, and and so there seems to be beef between him and and um, De Blasio that stems, you know, back from uh, you know a few things that have happened uh, to to police and how and and I guess De Blasio's reaction to that. Um, and so there's and clearly, I remember that issue, but that's not a reason for you to just check out and be dismissive and don't hold people accountable. And no, I get for you are there to serve the people. We pay our tax dollars. You are here to serve and protect all of us. You are not here mm -hmm. to abuse us. And I feel like they exactly. have this they have this whole covert um attitude of going back to operating the way police were intended to during slavery to just catch us and return right. us back to the plantation. And I feel like that's how they behave on a day in a day in a day in basis. It's like, I'm not listening to you. You're going to do what I say. I tell you what to do. And I don't have time for your inferiority complex. You know, um, you probably was bullied as a kid. Like their behavior is disgusting. It's disgusting. They do not operate like um, like they're there and they're paid to work for the people. That's not how they operate at all. They don't even speak to you with respect, not a smile. It depends on who you are. If you have the complexion for the protection, they will jump up and do what you need them to do. If you call them for anything, it's like they're very biased. They're very unapproachable. They need to throw that whole police department away. They need to throw Pat Lynch away, the whole union, and start it all over because they are trash. They are trash. They spent all uh, the last two weeks um, abusing New York City young Black people for social distancing while on the other side of Manhattan they were handing out masks to white people in the park. I don't respect that. 
So you can have your personal issues, Pat Lynch, with de Blasio, but at the end of the day, you have a job to do. And your job is to make sure that your police officers are following a specific code of conduct. And no one is ever able to be clear about what that code of conduct is. What is that code of conduct? And do your police officers follow them? No, they do not. They don't follow them. And it's not, granted, it's not all of them. But the, too many of them taints the whole bunch. If I have five encounters with police officers in my entire life, all from New York City, and every last one of them is negative, damn it, I'm going to think that it's a whole damn bunch. So at what point do they think it's important to change the narrative of how we view them? And they don't want to change the narrative because they don't care about what Black people think. They don't care about how we feel about our rights and how we get to feel about them antagonizing us for the dumbest things. People don't understand that that, that feeling is real when, a, when you're driving in a nice car and a cop drives by you and does a U-turn to pull you over and ask you questions about who you are or how did you get this car. That's not your fucking place. That's not your place. Like, I, stuff like that really takes me over the edge because people will make excuses about that behavior. What about that is suspicious? Nothing about that. So, Pat, when do you hold your people accountable? You see things on video. He saw that Hispanic cop beating that boy up for no reason as he's asking him, why are you, why are you stopping him for social distancing? And he went and beat that boy up for no reason. So because you can't just stop and frisk now we're doing this whole social distancing and arresting people for social distancing, out of the 58% the or the 58 people that were arrested for social distancing, probably about 38 of them was Black. And you want me to believe that you're for me. Like, no, that those personal beefs, I don't care about that. I don't care about that. That should not have anything to do with how you're operating on a day-to-day -day basis. And it is a problem when New Yorkers are not thinking about local politics. Like who we put into office is so important. You can't just check your, you know, check all the way down the box for a Democrat. Every Democrat ain't for you. All kin folk, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Everybody is not for you. And I just feel like our whole government, every, every political from national to local is just a mess. We have not been involved, tuned in, tapped in enough to really make sure we're putting the right people in place to advocate for us. And now we're at this boiling point. You have an entire country of African-Americans, some who may have never traveled outside of the spaces that they're in, who are in a rage who are protesting to be seen, to be heard, to say, I am here because I want my basic rights. I just want you to see me and value me and respect me and to not kill me. If I'm committing a crime, then arrest me and allow me to go to jail and be tried like everybody else. Don't take it above yourself to sit there and decide that you're gonna be the judge and jury and just take my life because you feel like my life has no value. I'm attached to a community. I'm attached to a mother and a father and a kid or children. Like you don't get the right. And these police officers are running around here just feeling like they have the right to just take people's lives. This shit is unacceptable. Like I talking about it and I knew that we were going to do this podcast today and I really was like I'm not gonna curse I'm not gonna get riled up 
but I just get so frustrated. I get so frustrated because some of these situations could be escalated and we're only getting to see these things because someone is recording. And sometimes you'll hear people on social media say, why don't y'all put that um, recording down and go help? And it's like, I understand why somebody doesn't jump in. Like, what are you to do if it's just you by yourself to jump in on a cop? They're going to shoot you down too, right? And then it's just two dead people. And it's like, if we don't have these videos, no one would be listening to us right now. So this entire right. country is like up in arms. You have one half of the country who's not, first of all, you have a half of this country that's not even saying anything. They don't even want to get involved. It's not, they, I don't even want to deal with those individuals who don't even want to get involved because they're part of the problem. You have another half of this country who the African-Americans are arguing like, do you not see, this is what we deal with all the time. Do you not see that this is a problem? And then you have the other side of the country who, is defending this cop's actions. That's problematic. Right, and so it's problematic. Um, and we un what we what we should understand is that there are lots of threads that are sort of um, involved here, right? And and we have to address each of them. Um, and I guess that's the, the challenge that we are faced with. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I guess with, as, so in doing this podcast and, and, you know, for those who, who will then watch it, and I'm pretty sure we will have um, supporters and likely uh, detractors um, and, and, you know, we, you know, we, we, our job, I'm supposing, or at least one of the things that I'm hoping to do is to present uh, or put forth a position. And if you agree with it, fine. If not, fine too. Um, but to put forth a position and at least have a dialogue where even if all we do is agree to disagree, then at least we do that. Um, because to just talk past uh, one another solves nothing, um, you know. And 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 so one of the things, right? So you you raised that uh, you you knew we were going to do the podcast, and you said you weren't going to curse. But a thing, you know, things are you're you know this is an emotional thing, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tried to use that. Uh, oh, well, you know, she's cussing and carrying on as a way to discredit um, your point, because that's, that's part of, I guess, what happens when you, when you take a position. Um, you know, somebody wants to be right, and in order for somebody to be right, somebody has to be wrong. Um, but that, that doesn't necessarily have to be the outcome, because certain things are relative. Uh, or things have to be looked at in their context. Um, and, and just to go back and address, you know, the thing that you said about uh, uh, people not jumping in, um, well, it's, it's kind of wise that they don't because, as you said, 
you know, you end up with a, a bunch of dead bodies that uh, doesn't solve anything. And the recordings at least uh, provide um, provide evidence, if you will, or or a a transcript, a visual uh, transcript, or or a record of what has happened, especially since uh, whether body cameras that police uh, are supposed to wear and um, supposed to have on when they're interacting with um, the public, um, who knows if they're recording or if those are or tampered with or, or something like that. Are and, we and paying so, for that with our tax dollars? Um, I'm I'm pretty sure we are. There might be some money, you know, that is given from the federal level, but it this keeps bringing us back to the notion of um, law failing people who look who who look like us, who who are you know black and brown people, because um, it was never intended uh, to benefit us. And so I think. You know, and it, and then it goes back also to this notion of, you know, white fragility and uh, people just needing to be honest about where we are as a country and how its history has influenced um, and framed where we are. Um, you know, they didn't when when enslaved Africans were brought here, they were brought here um, only to, you know, serve as housekeepers, field workers, and, you know, um, slaves to reproduce um, other black and brown bodies who could be pressed into service. Um, when that flow got disrupted, it made some people angry and they sought ways to um, ensnare uh, black and brown uh, bodies and to keep them from the promises uh, that were put on paper. And, and this is where we are today, I would suggest. And we keep having to go back to the drawing board as it relates to law um, I mean, if we look at the, the civil rights, um, the civil rights of 1964 wasn't the first uh, civil rights act. Um, we, you know, started this in the 1800s um, and that didn't work. And then probably even before then, and that didn't work. And we just keep having to go to the drawing board. Okay, now you're equal, now you're equal. Um, but Unfortunately, um, to my mind, law is never going to make us equal because it never was intended to benefit us. The fact that um, women who in the 1920s, uh, uh, you know, were granted the right to vote, um, they weren't intended even to be, uh, how do you call it? Uh, citizens. They were, you know, I'm, and I'm speaking obviously of white women, they were um, considered property and their job was to have babies and raise them and, you know, just keep cranking out babies to keep white citizenry um, in, in, you know, in effect. 
Uh, and so I, I think a lot of things are happening uh, in this country, one of which, you know, it, by the 2050, I think it is, um, the country is going to be more Latinx and Hispanic uh, than it is white. And that probably is scaring a lot of white folks. Of and and, <laughs> and so they they are trying to do whatever it is. And when I say they, I don't mean individual white folks, but the structure is trying to do what it can to maintain itself. And if, if that means closing borders, not allowing um, people from uh, countries of color, um, and, and, you know, unfortunately killing of black and brown bodies um, to keep the, the, uh, the shift in, in uh, the population from happening, the structure is gonna do what it needs to do to protect itself. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate. So it's really unfortunate. I guess I have a few questions for you, right? And these are questions that um, we probably should both answer. And I want to make sure that we get enough in because these are some interesting questions. So be as brief as possible, but um, so I'll, the first one is, what's the difference between police brutality, excessive force, and murder, and why does it always seem easily justified? Um, so not being a law enforcement professional, I don't really know what the difference is, but I can tell you murder is, you know, ultimately the cessation of life. Um, by someone. Um, and so the net effect is somebody ends up dead. Um, I don't know what the standards are in terms of excessive force, um, but it certainly, just as a layperson would, would to my mind, mean um, an, an amount of force that is over and above what is necessary to subdue someone, right? So just for an example, having seen some of these videos that have been either on the news or on social media, so if a person is down on the ground, face down, uh, with their hands cuffed behind their back, um, why does one's knee need to be on one's neck? To me, that would be excessive force, because if the goal is to subdue someone and handcuff them, um, and you've done that, then, you know, there is no more force that is necessary. Um, saw something yesterday on the news at one of the um, protests where I guess a protester was being taken down and the protester was down on the ground, um, you know, face to the ground. Uh, I guess I couldn't tell if the hands were in cuffs or not, but I saw a police person just steady kicking um, the person as they were down, um, and I'm guessing it was in their rib cage or whatever. That to me would constitute excessive force because, again, if the goal is to um, handcuff the person uh, and their hands are behind their back, 
I don't know what kicking the person in the rib is going to uh, further accomplish in the goal of handcuffing the individual. And so again, I'm I'm not speaking as a law enforcement. I'm in academia, so this is just my layperson's uh, uh, digestion, if you will, of what excessive force is. And to me, it means force that is above and beyond what is necessary to accomplish the goal. Um, okay. So, I mean, that's pretty clear cut. I see them. So the brutality, police brutality and excessive force, I see it as one and the same. Of course, murder is extreme. And I do think that there are, I'm sure there are times where it's probably, I don't know if I want to even go out on a limb and say that it's probably avoidable. Um, I, I, I want to believe that it should be the last course um, and should be avoided at all costs. But it's weird because anytime you see videos of police interactions with white people, white men or women, they will tase you in a minute to get you down to the ground. They will do everything but pull their gun out to get you to comply and shoot. So um, the police brutality, I think what I would like to see, and it may already very well be there, but I would like to see some code of conduct rules somewhere for every police department that, and there's someone who oversees the accountability aspect and not within the police department. It needs to be a system that's outside of the police department that can police them, that has no political affiliations or ties to whoever is running the police department in that city or in that state because there's a lack of accountability that's running rampant. And for me, these things are very blurred. There's just blurred lines. The police brutality to the excessive force, like they're all one in one in one in the same for me i'm just not sure if they're not clear about what that is and what that looks like then how am i supposed to be clear as a citizen um i know we talked about this but how many black lives must we lose before we respond in violence and is violence the answer so um interesting question uh, and, and, and again, um, I guess the way I would respond to it, um, <clears throat> is, it, it depends, right? So, um, I'm very careful, I'm guessing, uh, uh, because again, these, these words will live on in uh, infamy or, or whatever. But so violence um, shouldn't, to my mind, uh, be the way. But um, again, how long is it expected that people are supposed to um, just be met with violence and not have a reaction? Right, so there's the scientific uh, thing, you know, and, and 
it says for every reaction, there is an equal and an opposite reaction. Um, so now, uh, I guess one could argue that if the action is violence, then the equal and the opposite reaction is uh, nonviolence. Um, or does that mean the equal and the opposite reaction from the other person, from the opposing or the opposite person is equal amount of, of violence? Um, I don't know. But one thing I do know that when the wildfires are raging in California and um, there isn't enough water and sand to uh, put the fires out, typically what the firefighters do is they light backfires so the fires will meet in the middle and burn themselves out. Um, and so that, I guess, is an example of how you um, quell a fire with fire, or how you quench fire with fire, right? So it doesn't make sense normally that when we are putting a fire out, we do it with fire. We normally, when we put fire out, we put it out with water or carbon um, CO2 because it robs the fire of oxygen, which it needs uh, to burn. And so, um, in, in thinking about this question as well, when, <clears throat> whenever there is going to be a demolition of, of an old building, or like when they're taking down a stadium because they're gonna build a new one, they don't neatly unscrew the whole thing and take it a piece brick by brick. No, they place um, strategically um, dynamite and then in a controlled, uh, way, there is an implosion. So the building falls inward on itself and, you know, they clear away the rubble and then they start the new construction again. Um, a rather, uh, a rather, uh, I guess, violent way, if you will, to uh, deconstruct something. Um, but uh, I, I I guess to the to the rational thinking person, um, you know who who is expected to just keep getting beat down and then at some point not fight back. Right. I mean, you know, it, it just and willing to go out on a limb, <laughs> and I honestly feel like. I mean, violence has been taught to us by white people. So, you know, that has been the way that they have taken everything from us, from removing us from Africa, from um, going, you know, we're here, from raping women, from, you know, getting us to beating black men as slaves and um, buck backbreaking and everything to intimidate us and to get us to conform to what they needed us to do, beat us into taking us away from our original, um, original religion and what we chose to to practice and beating us out of, you know, not using our original native names that we had and you know um, 
forcing us to continue to be slaves, stealing our kids from mothers and husbands and, and selling them off to all of that is violent practices. All of that was violence, pure violence to, you know, um, we're trying to go to school and you don't want us to segregate to, I like I've completely bypassed Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, in that analogy, whereas we have our own community. We're thriving. We're staying in our community. We're building businesses. You know, our money was circulating in Black Wall Street probably about 18 times uh, in the community before it left. We had banks. They came home from war. They didn't like that. They were jealous. They didn't have any money. What did they do at four in the morning? Came over to Tulsa, Oklahoma, killed us, uh, murdered us. Uh, former Marine uh, veterans who served set fires to everything that they could see because we were Black and we had what they wanted. So I think it's very, um, I just think that it's very hypocritical for anyone or especially, you know, white people. And I'm putting them all in one category. I don't care how people feel about it. Not my problem. Um, they're all in the same category to me. It's nothing that they have taken from us that has been pleasantries. It's all been stemmed in violence. Every last piece of it, down to when they came here from the Indians, when they took the land, it was all in violence. So this notion that, um, that violence is not the answer, I don't necessarily believe that. I do think I do think that it's a part of war. I do think that it's a part of standing your ground. I mean, we've been begging for seats at a table. We've been begging for integrated schools. We've been begging for all of these different things to be seen and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. Colin Kaepernick peacefully got on one knee to talk about the injustices and what happened? He got blackballed completely. And then what did they do? On their website had a nerve to, to NFL to type that he retired. That's not what happened. Y'all blackballed him. So it's like, no, I feel like at the end of the day, you can't keep pushing me and telling me I don't matter before I want to show you know how much I do matter. And at this point, I think that we have just as much stake in this country than anybody else, than any other ethnicity and any other person here, because we built this. Our ancestors' blood is in this soil. Our kids and our husbands and our uncles, their blood feeds this soil daily every time a government official or someone, a police officer, murders or takes advantage and, and murders our people and leaves their blood there for us to just deal with it later. Like, after a while, you cannot... What else am I supposed to do? Because you're not listening. So if you don't listen and you don't want to respect what I'm saying, okay, then you can respect these hands. You can respect this violence. I know a lot of people don't agree with that and it's quite fine, but I have a right to protect my space. I have a right to protect my life. If you are approaching me and you're willing to take my life because you don't see value in it and I clearly see value in mine, no, I have a right to protect that. So if we got to get violent, then that's what it's going to be. And I realize what that statement says. I know that there's going to be some backlash. I know people are going to have something to say. I'm not, I don't really care. I don't. Because this is where we are at this point, at this moment. 
It's not like we got here because everything was handed to us nicely. We asked and you gave it to us. Then I can see the problem being violence. We, there's no need for us to just immediately resort to violence. We are talking about oh, like 50, 60 years. How long have we been out of slavery? How long has it been? Oh, since uh, the 1860s. And, and what are we still asking? Why are we still asking for basic things? We're still asking for basic things. We're not, we're not asking, we haven't even gotten to the conversation or into the ask of reparations and what that means in terms of free education or, you know, free land like Indians and reservations. We haven't even gone there yet. We're asking for basic rights to be able to live and breathe to be able to respond to say, no, that's not okay, to be able to travel on the road at night, go to the store in peace, whether it's to put a hoodie on, go with some Skittles, to jog around our neighborhood. We have the right to sleep in our houses at night without having some police officers gun our door down because they mistakenly are thought this was the house with the warrant. It's like, I don't, I don't understand what do you want from us? Like we have purpose. We want a lot for our children. We want, our parents don't expect to bury us. And that's what's happening. We have parents burying their children way before they need to. And that is yeah. unfortunate. We, so many of our lives are being cut down. So no, I'm with the violence. I, I'm with and it. it. And, and <laughs> you know, it, it goes back to um, uh, the notion of, um, people, black and brown people's role in this country uh, was not enshrined into law uh, to have its protections and its provisions. And um, this notion of white fragility, um, ensuring that uh, those things don't happen. Um, and, and so here's where we, we are today, unfortunately. So do you know where, how many black politicians have actually been speaking out in the last 72 hours? Have you seen any like statements, posts? Uh, so I cannot remember what city it is in Ohio, um, but there was a black, uh, she's either a Congresswoman or, or a Senator, can't remember her name, she actually uh, went out to be with the protesters in Ohio, uh, and she got pepper sprayed. Um, uh, who was it? Uh, Joyce Beatty, um, African-American Congresswoman, uh, was pepper sprayed uh, during a racism protest. Uh, and this was very recently. and and. So it was her and several top African-American local officials in Columbus, Ohio. They were uh, pepper sprayed during the protests on Saturday, uh, I guess yesterday, over the, um, the death of uh, George Floyd. Um, and then, of course, we've heard from uh, uh, Keisha Lance Applebottom. Uh, I briefly watched um, a few of the... Uh, 
the the political pundits this morning. Um, there was uh, oh, I can't remember her name. Um, she's a running mate, uh, not a running mate. She's a I guess under consideration in terms of being a running mate for uh, with Joe Biden. Um, she's from Florida. Uh, Navita, what is her name? Uh, Florida uh, VP candidate. Um, just quickly looking up her name, Val Demings. Um, she basically weighed in this morning. Um, but yeah, I, I think part of the, the challenge is, and then here in New York, um, I've seen um, Jumami Williams. Uh, he's been, you know, in in uh, speaking out, and and um, but I think part of the been very vocal. Jumani, um, he used to have the dreads in Brooklyn. Yeah, right? yeah, he's mm -hmm. always. I love him. I well, not like that, but he's very <laughs> he's very vocal. He's always he's definitely for the people in his district. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's very vocal. So I'm not surprised that he has spoken out. But I think part of the, the challenge is, um, is that there aren't that many uh, black politicians. And to double back to something that, that you uh, said earlier, after the last um, uh, state of killings, if you will, um, of black men, we saw uh, Trayvon Martin's mother, I believe it was, or either Mike Brown's mother, um, run for local public office. And so there is an organization called CREW, uh, C-R-E-W, um, here in New York. Um, and what they do is work with um, I think women. Uh, it's it's called Citizens uh, for Response. No, that's not it. Um, I can't remember if it's called Citizens for Responsibility. No, that's not it. Um, but there's this organization uh, in called Crew, uh, which if you are Yes, here it is, civically re-engaged women. So if you are um, thinking of running for public office, um, this organization called CREW actually, yes, it's in New York State, um, will work with you and help you uh, to put together a platform, help you find funding, um, to, to get in at the local level at some of um, some of these offices. And so they provide training and programming for um, uh, women who are interested in uh, serving in um, public office. And so I think, you know, what kind of needs to happen is for people who are black and brown, um, if they want to do something, they kind of first need to see themselves in it, right? So, for example, um, when I used to be the associate dean 
at um, Metropolitan College of New York in their school for business, I would just get women coming to my office um, just breaking down because, you know, they had never seen anyone that looked like them in that position. Um, and so it representation matters. Uh, and I think we need to see more women of color, more men of color in local official, uh, in local uh, public office. Um, because again, all politics is local. And, and if we want to make a change in some of these structures and, and you know, um, I think in all arenas, we need to be active, right? So in the protest arena, in the, the um, elected official arenas, uh, in, in, in uh, you know, police departments, um, in education, I guess, uh, and, and so when we are visible in that way, uh, people can see that they can have something to aspire to and, and perhaps believe that they can, can do that too. And so I'm, I'm kind of glad that, you know, you're in the position that you're in, um, an entrepreneur, a mogul, a project manage, manager, and, and the other, you know, positions that you uh, hold because people will be able to see themselves in you and believe that they can do that too, right? So there's more to it uh, than just being, you know, um, a, a, an athlete or, and, and nothing, of course, wrong with that but the chances of being a project manager are greater um, than of you being a pro footballer. Agreed. And you Agreed. can make a whole lot of money as a project manager. <laughs> I agree. You know, <laughs> you know, and you have to worry about your season being cut short because you broke your leg or something. And so, right. uh, you know, and, and doing this podcast, uh, as you know, Part of the reason I think that we, you know, collectively agree to do this is because we want to create legacies. We want to build bridges. We want to pour into uh, women who look like us, whether they are older or younger, um, that there are possibilities that exist that perhaps you hadn't considered. Right. No, I agree. So this brings me to my next question because it just flows. Uh, curious to know what role do you think Black women are actually playing right now? So I've been, for the last few days, I've been calling this the reconstruction. Like this is our civil rights movement. This is a different phase. We're in a different age group. Um, so wondering like what role do Black women women play. Um, not only are we on the front lines, you see us there, but we're mothers losing our children, spouses, brothers, daughters, and grandmothers in some cases. So I'm wondering what role do we play or what role do you think we play? And what do you think this is doing and how do you think this is impacting our mental health? Because we're living in constant fear for our lives or the lives of our families, literally. And that does, that does wonders to your mental health and stress levels. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, I don't know about wonders. <laughs> oh, right. Um, right. Not wonders, but. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does have an impact. Um, you know, I think that what it does um, is that it, it, it positions black women in a role that um, it, it holds us in a role that we have always, um, that we have always been, um, I don't know, positioned in just because we're black women. Yes, super women. The, the, the um, you know, the amount of stress that is placed on black bodies and particularly, um, you know, the, 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 the black body of a woman. So I can't speak to the stress that's put on the black body of a man because I'm not a um, black man. But um, the expectations that are put upon the female of a black body, uh, the, the black body of a female, excuse me, are, um, are just um, unrealistic. But yet, um, because of the strength of the black female body, uh, even though she may not know how uh, she's going to do it, but she, you know, says to herself, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. And lo and behold, she does. Um, and I think that's, you know, the black girl magic that, um, that we have. Uh, that's also dangerous and it, taxing because it's right. So we we're prone to always having to figure it out. Like we don't really have time to whimper and whine. But it's got to get done. So I just need to figure it out. And I'm just wondering how that. I know personally for me, it is overwhelming. And sometimes I'm most times I'm not sleeping properly, and I'm clear that that has impacted my weight gain and not eating properly and just stress in general just like tension and it's added to my anxiety of feeling like i always need to have an answer and i always need to be able to fix it because if i can't fix it that's a problem and the thought of the repercussions of not being able to fix whatever it is that i am facing is a bigger stressor than not coming up with an answer. And so when you put in factors like, I have to now be worried about how my daughter is gonna be perceived. She's 10, she's a young black woman, right? And now I have to think about just conversations I need to have with her. Even with my little brother who's now 18 and he's valedictorian, in the Bronx and he's in the top four percentile in New York State with science and math, graduating at the top of his class from high school. And it's like, I'm afraid for him to go outside, especially yeah. in New York City. That's a problem. I'm afraid for him to even walk to the, I don't even want him to, I like that's, that's dangerous because now we're enabling them from living 
but we're also putting this hyper fear on them and ourselves about what could happen because we just naturally don't feel safe. And I don't think that people realize the amount of stress, what it looks like to have to get up and look good and to come outside and go to work and be fearful of getting a phone call. Be fearful of allowing your child, whether it's a son or a daughter, your black child, to go out and getting that phone call or you going out and, and, and driving and going to the store or the fear of when a police officer pulls up behind you and not really knowing what to do and stumbling over words or feeling like you just need to relax, but you, you know, you got to keep your hands on the wheel. You don't want to move like that's too, that's too much. That's not necessary. And those are things that we as black people have to experience every day that other people don't. And so I, you know, what needs to happen is um, America needs to come to terms with its problem of white fragility um, because black and brown bodies can no longer support um, such a heavy, uh, a heavy weight. Um, they just, we, we can't support that anymore uh, just because literally we're only 12 to 13% of the population. What happens if we dwindle to less than that? Who's the next group that uh, is gonna be negatively impacted by America's white fragility problem? Who's gonna be required to bear that burden? Um, and so, you know, there needs to be a reckoning, an honest reckoning and a dealing with and a healing of America's white fragility. Um, it's, a, it's a psychological problem. It's a sociological problem that um, needs to be healed. And oh, I don't know if that's realistically going to happen especially not today. I mean, thinking about it being like a psychological problem, you know, I'm in therapy actively and I go every week uh, for the last, it's, I think it's now six months, kudos to me, but I go every week. And when I started um, being fully transparent, I, my levels of where I tested for my assessment was for depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And I was at high levels. And so the goal was for a 90-day goal was to see how much we could decrease those levels. Now, saying that out loud, and I said it to a few friends, and it was just like, one of the responses was, wait, what? You? Because you're always laughing. You're always like, like, you're just always so helpful, and you're always like doing so much to help other people. And I'm like, that's a part of the problem. Like people have our, we are, we just keep going. We just keep going. And, you know, to work on things for me, to work on my anxiety and to, um, to not, I remember having this anxiety attack on the highway as I'm driving. And one of my fears has always been since I moved out to DC has been, um, 
I don't want no police officer to come to my daughter's school to get her because something happened to me, right? And we're the only ones in the state. My family is in other places and we moved here. So I have this anxiety attack while I'm driving on the highway. It was a lot happening going on at the time. And I guess I froze up as I was driving and this car like sideswiped my car. And it like sent me into a tizzy. So I ended up pulling over and I honestly have to say the police officers in Montgomery County in Maryland, I've never had since I've been here, have never had a negative interaction with them. Never. I don't know. And so I try to be mindful because I don't know what their relationship is like with other people in the city. Right. But for me, I have personally never had a negative interaction with a police officer in Montgomery County in Maryland. And that says a lot because this is not, this county uh, has a lot of, it's very expensive to live here. So it's pretty diverse here. Not as diverse, but financially it's a lot. And you know, sometimes in those affluent areas, it could be that the perception of how the police may treat you because you're here could be different. And that wasn't my case. Like he calmed me down. He asked that I have somebody to call. Um, He wanted to make sure I was okay. And it was a very healthy interaction. But the moment he was approaching the car, it was sending my anxiety into a complete tizzy. I couldn't even articulate. Like he could see that something was wrong because I couldn't even like talk and I was freaking out because I didn't know what was about to happen. And sometimes with your anxiety, like the narratives you tell yourself, right? And I'm just thinking about my experiences with police officers in New York City and just in general with our people can be crazy. So my fear of something happening to me, my anxiety in the moment is already on 10 and now this police officer is coming to the car. And I remember like driving away, he he stayed with me for like 10 minutes to make sure I was okay. Like, I don't even, I never even got a chance to get this police officer's name or like, it was such a, when you're having an anxiety attack, you're in another place anyway. It's like an out of body experience, but he, and he was not black. He was white. So So, I mean, does that color then, or does that somehow mitigate um, some of the things that you articulated about? Because I I was clear on what I said. I articulated about cops in New York City. Okay. That's where my interactions, I've had interactions with cops in D.C. Now they weren't, I wasn't doing anything illegal, but I've been, they're approachable. I haven't had any, I don't, I don't get the same unapproachable, don't talk to me, I'm just going to beat you down, X, Y, and Z. I've never gotten that from cops in D.C. I've never gotten that from both mm-hmm, black okay. and white cops. And even here in Montgomery County, I've never gotten that from black or white cops here. So I'm not saying that they don't behave that way. It's just in my experiences with them, I haven't had that. So it's put me in a position to where I'm clear. Now, when I come back to New York, there's always some interaction with police officers. 
Like there's, they're all over the place. It's like nonstop. It's so annoying. And I just, I just try to go to my destination. So, and, and keep it moving. <laughs> Sometimes I don't, I will park my car in a garage just so I don't have to drive. Like, I just want to go where I'm going because mm-hmm. I just, I don't want to deal. So no, it doesn't mitigate the fact that there's a problem. What it does say is that for me, what is Montgomery County doing with their police officers and their training? What is DC doing with their police officers and their training? That that's not a, like the interaction is different. There probably are some police departments across this country that don't have the same problems right? Their police officers might be involved in the community. They might be, you know, not so high strung, not so aggressive, you know, not racially motivated, right? So what are these, these police stations or departments that are thriving in a healthy way, the way they're policing, what does that look like? What does their training look like? What does their accountability look like, right? And why are we not copying that in other places where it's a huge problem? So I know that that was like a tangent, but it was my point about (laughs) mental health because we're already dealing with enough as Black women. So I just, this is concerning and wondering if America is going to change. Like you have to make a decision to say that you want to change. And that was really my original point, even with therapy. Like I had to make a decision to go. And once you go, then you're open to receive information. You're open to be helped. But America doesn't even admit their abuse. They don't even admit really slavery and to the degree in which they're willing to take accountability. You still have white people who say things like, well, that wasn't me. That was my great, great grandfather. What? Are you crazy? Like, you know. Yeah. So that that goes back to this notion of, of, um, white fragility and how this notion of the racist or racism is not systemic. It's just a few individuals who are intentional in um, their actions um, to, you know, be racist. And so I think the the gap is between um, uh, admitting that it is a system uh, versus individual acts. Um, and it, you know, what really needs to happen is uh, leadership needs to step up. And, and there has just definitely been a void in uh, leadership at, um, you know, certainly the federal level. Um, and so we shall see what happens in November. Um, again, not just at the federal level, but at um, state and local levels as well. Um, so, but I think that if, if you know, if anything uh, is to happen, uh, we definitely need to show up in those spaces, um, not just politically, but even professionally, right? So. So, okay, my last question, and I think that this is going to be an audience question. So, and you can chime in and answer as well, but so should we collectively focus on a specific target when it comes to 
police and holding them accountable, like the insurance companies who provide coverage to police officers. Should that be in terms of next steps, who we target to get some sort of change or reform or to get the, co the conversation going? Um, is that something to consider? Well, I mean, you know, uh, it, it would be interesting to hear um, what the audience has to say. Um, but I, right, so I thought about this question and I don't know that targeting insurance companies um, is gonna help, right? Be because I'm pretty sure in a lot of insurance policies, right? So let's let's just think about a life insurance policy. Um, one of the disclaimers in a life insurance policy is that if the person you um, leave your insurance to, the beneficiary kills you, they can't collect, right? So um, it would make them think twice about killing you. Um, and so I would have to believe that in some sort of uh, uh, liability insurance policy uh, or malpractice, I don't know what it is called, that there is some disclaimer in there that lets the insurance company off the hook if the cop does something wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Because the last thing insurance companies want to do is pay out huge proceeds because the way insurance companies make money, as I understand it, is by collecting those premiums and then not having to pay them out. And so I don't necessarily know that um, going after an insurance company um, is going to be the way to go. I, I believe that, um, you know, every time a citizen sues a, um, a state um, because of uh, police malpractice or, again, whatever it is called, I don't know, um, there's probably, I don't know if it's an insurance company that pays out um, the settlement um, that the city ends up, ends up paying, but because the cop works for the city, the city ends up getting sued not the cop, um, but then there probably is some sort of a civil um, suit where the individual sues the police uh, person, but I don't know that there's a lot that comes out of that. And so I think what needs to happen is um, city, uh, city governance, needs to, as you you know said before, create these accountability structures. Now, I, I believe um, New York City has the Civilian Complaint Review Board. Um, I don't know how effective that is. Um, and just who because is when I I'm sure they have complaints there from 1980, which is the year I was born. I... <laughs> I'm a New Yorker to my heart, but I am not pleased with their support at all for Black people, at all. Right. So, 
so again, I, I don't know that the insurance, um, suing the insurance company is the way to go. I think um, holding cities account, accountable or finding a way to hold cities accountable um, for the agents that they deputize um, in the form of police officers is what needs to happen. Now, I, I remember years ago, in order to be um, a city worker, and this was whether you were a teacher, a police, a fire person, you actually had to live in New York City. You had to live in the five boroughs. Now, um, that is not the case. You can live in another state, you can live in another county, and still be a New York City um, employee. Uh, and so, I don't know if there is something that severs um, a um, a connectivity, uh, uh, um, a fiduciary a feeling of a fiduciary duty, um, because you know you only come here to work to police, but then you go live in another community. Right. So um, I don't. There I are, don't. There are a lot of police officers who do that, and actually. The ones who, I believe you are supposed to, because the ones that I've encountered that I know personally, they have an address that they use in New York City that covers yeah. them, but they go home to where they really live. So yeah. that's problematic because you're already breaking a law and you're supposed to be <laughs> protecting the law. So no, I, I should uh, out them, but I'm not going to do that. That's not. Yeah. That's not my lane. So this was a lot, this episode. This was a lot to unpack, but I'm glad I got to unpack it with you. Uh, I think we probably have, could go on for hours, but um, to not sound like we're running on a tangent with our audience, <laughs> we need to make sure that we cap it. So I know one of the things that we wanted to do was just give our audience some homework and this is just really about being proactive and being a part of the change that you want to see. Uh, maybe one of the things was, you know, what are the police compliance rules and how can we get them changed? And so are you knowledgeable about police compliance rules in your state, in your city? Do you know how to access them? That's really important. Most importantly, read them. If you've never read them, read them, fully understand them, like go through them and figure out what makes sense, what stands out and what do you want to change about that. Uh, I would also encourage people to research how to create policy. And the funny thing about this is that my friend uh, Millie created the whole Black Query. So it's blackquery.com and I'll make sure that this is in the show notes when we post our podcast, but it's on my Twitter page, uh, blackquery.com. And she's collecting data to help. The, I'm sorry, what is she doing? She's collecting data to help people create policy, right? So she's starting the conversation because Black votes matter, right? So what is it that we're asking for? What is it that we want? 
And so there's different campaigns that are up right now. There's some that's running, but then people will go in and vote. You'll either put out an idea because I don't think that people really understand that policy can be created by anyone. It doesn't have to be a government official. It could be a person in the city, right? It just starts with an idea. Right. And so she'll they'll vote and see if they can get five to 10,000 signatures under the policies that actually make it when you vote it. And then they'll push them to different agencies and organizations who are currently working to move policy uh, just to start the conversation. But if we can start to collect the data from black people to say, here are the things that matter to us. Here are the policies and the things that we want to see put in place. It's a great place to start the conversation. And I also thought that it was really cool. Right now, it's being run as um, a non it's, it's their business, but they're doing this more as a passion project. So they're really looking for people who are interested in helping them to continue to move this and push it forward. Uh, but this was created in lieu of everything that has happened in the last week of events and trying to find solutions to challenge our anger and our rage. So we're protesting, but now what? Because what is the ask, right? We're burning shit down. We're tearing shit up. But what is our we're ask? Um, well, that's what's happening, right? Uh, excuse my language. I'm sorry. So they are burning things down and tearing stuff up. But what is the ask, right? So after you tear up the room, what are you asking for? So I think if anyone is interested, they can uh, definitely go check that out. And we have some book suggestions that we want you guys to read. So let's see, what's your book suggestion? So my book suggestion is uh, Black Trials, Citizenship, From the Beginnings of Slavery to the End of Caste by uh, Mark S. Uh, Warner, and um, it's a really good read, uh, and it just sort of gives some insight into uh, some of the things that I was saying about how uh, this country, um, even though they have, you know, granted citizenship to Black folks, um, never really intended to do so, um, and so definitely a good a good read historically. Um, and it, it's not just, uh, it, it's not mainly us tearing up stuff in the room and, and burning stuff down. I just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> no, you're right. That's, <laughs> let me not feed into the narrative, right? I'm sorry. So no, but we're really um, making some noise, right? And so it's important that we have an ask. Um, so my book suggestion is the COINTELPRO papers. Documents from the FBI's Secret Wars Against Dissent in the United States. Um, this book was, I believe, originally created, it was dedicated to Fred Hampton. Yeah. Uh, and it was created after he was murdered. And it was just really, it's an interesting read because it goes into every a lot of the things that I mentioned today about the agitators and people intentionally coming to derail political activists and the movement to deflect the conversation to infiltrate their movement and kind of disrupt it and i just thought that it is a really good book that it's important that we read that there's so many there's a blueprint 
that certain people in our history have created for us, our ancestors created for us. And Marcus Garvey is one of those people that I feel like have created a blueprint for me personally. Malcolm X has definitely created a blueprint for me. Uh, Afini Shakur, uh, Angela Davis, like I, Fred Hampton, um, I spent the weekend really going back and listening to Stokely Carmichael's speeches. They laid the blueprint for us. And a lot of times you listen to these speeches and you read these books and the things that they spoke about then are so relevant today. It hasn't changed just the time, right? Yeah. And the quality of the video. Other than that, nothing has really changed, right? It's almost like a smokescreen. It feels like we've advanced, but we haven't quite really. Because when you look up, it feels like we're still in the same, we're still in the same position fighting for the same things, even though it appears that we have more. Uh, so I have really, I look to those blueprints because I think how we move forward has a lot to do with what's in those blueprints. And so I just want to encourage people to take a look at, uh, take a look at that. I know one of the conversations on my Twitter has really been like, Black people need a code of conduct. We definitely need a code of conduct that we need to follow, whether it's for business or it's just for us as a people, but we definitely need a code of conduct. And um, I agree with that. I think that we are off kilter in a lot of ways. And it's partly because we've been so disconnected from our history and we're just kind of like doing our own thing. I think this pandemic probably taught me the most and I needed to just be still. And being still is not a bad thing. And really going within and figuring out and being clear about and intentional about what my next steps are. So if we could provide um, insight by sharing different book selections every episode about what we'd like to see people read it's you know and I'll let Leslie kind of explain what book selections mean to her for this podcast edition but for me is more so to just share a different perspective um, information is knowledge and a lot of the things that we need are in books and it's also in the books that are not always highly talked about those are right. the books that i'm more interested in reading because we can't lose we can't continue to let other people tell our stories we can't continue to to grow and create children and to move forward in our legacy without passing this information on because then our history gets completely lost and it gets put in the hands of other people who want to manipulate it and choose to either remove us or tell us the story in a way that suits them. And, and to your point, um, there may very well come a time, just as um, that time once was, where people who look like us weren't permitted to read. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how we transmitted our history, our knowledge, our culture was through storytelling. And so if we read these books um, that we're recommending and others, and if we um, rehearse these things 
and and pass them down to our little ones uh, as long as as long as we live and as long as they live and transmit them to their little ones, then you know this history, this knowledge, this wealth, these jewels uh, will continue to live. And um, I'm guessing you know one thing we might want to do um, is share with people um, where they can find us on social media. What are your thoughts sure. on that? I think we should. I mean, you can share that. So you can share your final thoughts for tonight, this episode, and then where they can follow you. So my final thoughts for this episode um, are, you know, here we go again. Um, and as long as there is a, a, a struggle for power and as long as um you know white fragility is supported um or as long as white fragility is not acknowledged by the people who suffer from it um black and brown bodies are going to have to pay for it and so uh it's a high price to pay um you know within the last 5 or 6 years um uh, we have seen almost on a weekly basis um, the mortgage that has been paid uh, for white fragility with the death of black and brown bodies. And we can't continue to do that. The price is too high. The mortgage is too high. Um, and so the people who are living with this, this problem uh, have to have to admit that there's a problem. Um, because if they don't admit that there's a problem, that they have a problem, um, you know, they will be left with nothing. Um, you know, they're, they're white, fragility, white fragility is destroying um, everything. We recognize it uh, because we're paying for it with our very lives, um, with our very freedoms, with our very health. Um, and it's just a matter of time before it destroys the entire um, nation. And so it's it's high time that um, white folks wake up and understand that they have a problem that they need to deal with. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Lessie B. Branch, um, on IG at Lessie B. Branch, and uh, same handle on Facebook as well. And where can they find your book? Ah, my book, Optimism at All Costs, Black Attitudes, Activism, and advancement in Obama's America. It is available, of course, on Amazon.com, um, and uh, you can find it at uh, several uh, indie bookstores as well. So yeah. Okay. So uh, my final thoughts. Um, 
I probably would say that I really want us to, like we've been here before, right? And we've been here so many times before. And I think the difference is, is social media has really changed the way we're able to see each other's lives and perspective to what's happening across the world is not just happening to us individually. And it's united us. Our trauma has literally united us and brought us in closer uh, to in connection to one another. So for me, I really would like us to start thinking about next steps uh, for those of you who are on the front lines in every major city throughout the United States who are protesting and who are yelling and screaming, I hear you, I see you, I hold positive space for you. Um, I'm keeping you covered. Um, and for those of us who are not there on the front lines, I want us to really start thinking about what role do we wanna play? Because at some point we're gonna have to let them tap us and we're gonna have to be it. And we're going to have to continue to move this forward for them. Um, I can't imagine what half of them are going to go through from being incarcerated to even being murdered, injured. There are going to be so many different repercussions for everyone who is uh, protesting for our collective rights. So I would like for us to really think about our why what is our role? What skills and gifts do we have that we can bring to the table? Are you great at grant writing? Are you, you know, great at business plan writing? Um, are you technically savvy, right? These businesses that have been destroyed, um, who are already pos possibly on the cusp of being destroyed during the pandemic and now these protests, right? How can we help them? Can we help them put up uh, GoFundMe? Can we share that information? Can we donate? We really can donate a dollar to $5 to every campaign that supports and helps a Black business uh, rebuild. And there's so, we have, we have, it's already been proven in the last report that we're at, um, was it, what is the number? Where our buying power is a, is a trillion now i think that's where we are with our buying power so yeah. yeah so yes we can you know support i understand what it is to be a business owner and to feel like you put your life savings into having this business and someone burned it down i get it i get it if there's anybody who understands that i get it but that business can be replaced and I would like us to be more of a support to start to support our Black businesses. They need us as much as we need them. And I think my, my last final thought is really just, I want us to stay encouraged. I want us to be solution oriented. Let's channel this rage. Let's really uh, collectively get together and think about some strategic ways that we can move this forward and how our gifts and skills can add to that. Uh, if you want to continue this conversation offline, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, Mrs. Young Mogul. So you can catch me there. My website is lanierlogan.com. Otherwise, just catch me on Twitter. That's where I'm hanging out these days, Mrs. Young Mogul. 
and um, thank you for joining us for episode three. We have been recording since about 6.30, and <laughs> we had this idea that our podcast was going to be 30 to 45 minutes, but I had to tell Leslie, like, two passionate women will never get their points across in, <laughs> in 30 minutes or less. So if you have stayed on to the end of this, we appreciate you. Thank you. Please comment on our social media. We're still developing. So right now, comment on one of our Twitter pages and let us know what your thoughts are. If you have questions or feedback, and we will be sure to start reading them on our next episodes. Thank you and good night. Good night. Okay, so now we can exhale. So what do you think? Definitely an interesting conversation. Um, <laughs> excited to, uh, definitely excited to to post and um, to see what, you know, the Nets, uh, what we haul in. Um, I feel like posting this raw, you know. Really? Yes. Because we're, so we're bringing people along with the journey. Uh-huh. Okay. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I think that um, we stayed on script and we stayed on, uh, uh, we didn't, we didn't go off on tangents, right? So we stuck to the script. So I think that will allow us to, to post it raw. Do you think that this helped? Um, having a script? Yeah. Absolutely. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it definitely did. Um, I think okay. it did. Perfect. So I, I'm going to start. I'm just going to do some edits. So here's a suggestion. Don't kill me. I want okay. you to watch your ums. I do this to everybody and it drives them crazy because when you say it, it means that you're second guessing, right? And so you say it a lot and I'm like, is she nervous? Does she know we not live, live? Like no one's really listening to us. So I want you to watch your ums. Every time you go to say an, uh, an um, just start counting. I do this to people in my interviewing workshops. And it trips them up because then they realize how many times they're saying it. Oh, okay. So that you can like get out of it. Cause there's a casual right. part to our conversation. So we say it casually, but like we're recording. So I think the counting of the ums. Okay. On that note, it's a Rizzi. Thank you for joining us. You can catch our latest episodes every Tuesday. Hear Me is on Spotify and iTunes. And it's executive produced by me, Leslie Branch, and Lanier Logan. And big thanks to Lil Sourstruck who produced the beat. Till next time, hear me.